Hello and welcome to The Supporting Cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Spencer Raskoff, a co-founder of tech companies like the travel site Hotwire and real estate site Zillow, where he served as CEO for nearly a decade. In this episode, Spencer speaks about his father Joe Raskoff's intrepid work in the music industry with acts like U2 and the Rolling Stones, how serving as editor of the Harvard Westlake Chronicle was perhaps the world's greatest preparation for what he calls servant leadership, and how he believes the notion of mentorship can be, quote, hacked, meaning accessible to all of us who are listening. On a more somber note, Spencer also speaks about an unimaginable tragedy he experienced while a Harvard Westlake student, how it influenced his life and career, and about the school community that embraced he and his family in the aftermath. It was a fascinating talk with Spencer, and I hope you enjoy it. This is The Supporting Cast. Spencer Raskoff, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thanks, Eli. Really happy to be here. <laughs> so first question, we were originally scheduled to do this uh, on March 26th, and the world obviously changed since then. So the question is, so since then, how have you been sort of enduring the uncertainty of the past several months? It's crazy times. When you, when you emailed me again to rebook this, you did it off the old thread, and it was like... That's I don't right. know. It was it was a blast from the past seeing the thread where we're like, oh, can you come in on this day? I'm like, yes, of course, we can do it on the campus. And then and then one of us said like, maybe we should just postpone it by a couple of weeks. Things are getting a little weird. <laughs> and then and then you know, and then we didn't we didn't the email thread sort of died for whatever it was like nine months. Um, I think you used the term bananas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do, yeah. So the world went bananas. Um, I, I mean, look, I, I have no complaints. Um, you know, obviously as a parent, it's been um, a little tricky having three kids at home, not doing school online, but that's yeah. such as it is. As a business person, I'm involved in a lot of startups and other companies. I'm sure we'll talk about a couple today. Yeah. And each yeah. of those companies have adapted in their own ways. Some, you know, some have been beneficiaries of, of the state of the world, some not as much. Probably the biggest personal takeaway is I'm spending a lot more time with my family. I think we probably yeah. all are, um, right. which is 99% awesome and um, yeah. you know, 1% a little bit more complicated, but, um, but it's, it's been great, you know, having lunch with, with my kids and breakfast and dinner and just kind of being around with them all the time is awesome. It's a blessing. So no complaints. Well, you mentioned a couple of the ventures that you've started pretty recently, Picasso Homes and .LA. I wondered if you could talk about them sort of in that order, because I have some follow-up questions in particular about .LA. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I retired as CEO of Zillow about a year and a half or so ago, and I started investing in startups and starting companies, and I started teaching at Harvard Business School. And the two startups that I've launched so far with two others on the way are .LA and Picasso. So just to start with Picasso, mm -hmm. uh, Picasso aims to democratize access to second home ownership. So owning a vacation home is a, an incredible luxury. It is, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a second home and it is, it is a place of great peace for me and my family. It's a place that, uh, where I can be the type of dad I want to be, the type of husband I want to be. It's where, you know, the family focuses on each other and we unplug. 
And, you know, but unfortunately, second home ownership is really only accessible to the 1%. And Picasso aims to make it accessible to the 10% or the 50% or someday the 100% hmm. through co ownership. And uh-huh. the reason that second home ownership is so, is so inaccessible is because this is perhaps the most underutilized asset. Second homes sit empty 11 months a year on average. And what Picasso aims to do is solve this problem of underutilization through co-ownership. So how does it work? Instead of um, you know buying that $500,000 vacation home in Santa Barbara or Palm Springs or Scottsdale or wherever, you can buy a portion of it. You can buy a quarter of it, an eighth of it, a half of it, however much of it you think you'd use. Picasso then pairs you with other co-owners and you end up owning that home with other folks. You never know them. You never see them. Um, they are trans. You know they're completely uh, invisible to you. When you want to use the house, you use the Picasso app to schedule your visits. Picasso does the property management, and it feels to you like a complete home ownership of that second home because it is. But you only shoulder the cost of a fraction of it, the fraction that you choose to use. Now the. the real estate market has been strong, at least in Los Angeles. The interest rates are low. You know this industry. 10 times, a thousand times better than I do. Has has this pandemic been strong for that type of business? You were mentioning that it, it's strong. Yeah. For certain- so, so Picasso has been a, a significant beneficiary of COVID um, because of the work from home phenomenon that we're living in the midst of, which I believe is permanent. Um, you know, people are now untethered for the most part. Most car- Most careers will now be forever untethered from a physical location. Maybe not those associated with schools, probably teachers. Hopefully someday we'll have to live and work in the same location. But for a lot of knowledge yeah. workers, um, they're going to have a much more flexible lifestyle. And as a result, people are choosing to live where they want to live, not where they have to work. And so that's driven huge interest in second home ownership. Um, Picasso has been a big beneficiary of that. So we're working with thousands and thousands of buyers looking at creating Picassos in markets like Tahoe, Santa Barbara, um, Napa Valley, uh, Aspen, Deer Valley, Park City, et cetera, all throughout the country. Um, and, and so j- just to kind of double click on exactly how it works, you can find a home that you're interested in on Zillow, Redfin, Trulia, Realtor.com, any real estate website, and you contact Picasso and we'll help work with you to turn that home into a Picasso. So, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, find a home you love, reach out to us, and, and then we'll, we'll help turn it into something that you share with co-owners and therefore can afford at a much lower price point. So you mentioned that this work from home thing may be permanent, that, that work can be untethered from a particular location. That seems disparate from some of the goals around .LA, but you can you can describe it that .LA is sort of about this community of the tech world in Los Angeles. What happens when when work really isn't tethered to any particular region? Yeah, so, and how so, do you think about that through the lens of .LA? I, I started .LA to shine a light on all the innovation in the startup and tech community in Los Angeles. So .LA is a media site that covers LA tech. The definition of what is LA Tech is is blurring, as you point out. Mm. Um, yeah. You know what is Picasso as an example, right? I'm the co-founder and chairman of Picasso. I live in LA. My co-founder lives in um, sometimes in San Francisco, sometimes in Napa Valley, sometimes in Tahoe, because um, he has a couple of of homes that he owns portions of Picassos. Um, <laughs> our CMO she lives in Seattle. Our head of sales lives in Cincinnati, et cetera. So it's a distributed company, and this is the way most startups are nowadays. So .LA is um, 
you know, having a little bit of a harder time defining what its coverage universe should be because right. it's not quite clear what, you know, where companies are based anymore. But but the mission of, of .LA is to, is to focus and help the LA tech scene achieve its full potential. I started this with another Harvard Westlake alum. Um, right. You know, the, the, the story has to be told here, here on your sure. podcast because I reached out to Miss Newmeyer, who was, mm-hmm. as, as many listeners will know, was the journalism uh, faculty advisor, was my journalism teacher at Harvard, at Harvard Westlake in 1993 when I graduated. And she was an amazing teacher, and I owe a lot of my success to Miss Newmeyer. And when I called her uh, about a year and a half ago and said, I have this idea to start a news site, to cover LA Tech, um, and I, you know, I called her to get her feedback on the idea, and she immediately loved it and gave me some great suggestions. And the most important suggestion she gave me was, you have to meet this guy, Sam Adams, who was the editor in chief of the Chronicle fifteen years after you, Spencer. So you don't likely know him, but um, but he'd be the right person to partner with you on this. And so Miss Newmeyer connected me with Sam. Sam wow. uh, ultimately became the CEO of Dot LA. I'm I'm his co-founder and, and chair. And it's been a great partnership, and I'm grateful to Harvard Westlake and to Miss Newmeyer for connecting me with my co-founder Sam Adams. And so, what are the activities that .la? So, so .la puts .la puts out a you know it's a a news website, so it's real time. We put out uh, you know anywhere from three to ten articles a day on www period dot period la. Um, We also put out a lot of video content, uh, webinars events, um, you know, for now, virtual events, someday physical events. Uh, we have a Slack channel for the LA tech community. Um, and so through a combination of news coverage on the site and also through our social media platforms like YouTube and um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, we are a great resource to learn what's happening in LA tech. We've been launched uh, for about 10 months and already we're the most widely read news service covering LA tech by far. And we're a great source for people in LA or people not in LA that just want to know what's happening here in Los Angeles. And why is tech burgeoning in Los Angeles? Oh man, uh, it, this is a boom time for LA tech for a lot of reasons. Um, the biggest is Los Angeles is the intersection of media, entertainment, pop culture. It is where people decide what is cool for the rest of the world. You know, this is where the influencers live, the athletes, the celebrities, the social media influencers. And so especially in consumer internet, this is where the the world looks to to figure out what trends are happening. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that LA Tech is having a real moment in the sun and I think will continue to to flourish. The other is it's become so much easier to start a company today. And LA is a beneficiary of that because while LA has this incredible culture of creativity and marketing talent and um, celebrity and influence culture, it does not have as deep a history of deep programming talent and software engineering the way the Silicon mm-hmm. Valley does. Right. But that's needed less and less because of all these shared services. So I'll just give you two quick examples. When we launched my startup Hotwire in 1999, we had uh, probably about 100 employees at launch, about 80 of whom were tech people. And we spent about $10 million. Meeting programmers. Programmers, um, yep. you know, web designers, um, uh, IT ops people that provision servers and you know, connect wires into computers. Um, and we spent about $10 million to launch that first version of the site. In 2006, when we launched Zillow, similar statistics, even though it was uh, 10 or more years later. So about 100 people, most of them were technically, uh, you know, were technical people. We spent a couple million dollars to launch the first version of the site. 
nowadays you're launching websites with you know one person or you know a handful of people that you're using shared services like AWS for example um you know Amazon web Amazon services, web services yeah. as as a, a a web hosting you know cloud provider so you don't need to buy tons of machines tons of computers and you don't need the technical expertise internally to turn on all those machines so what does that mean it means that startups can launch with two or three technical people. There's more than enough technical talent in LA uh, for for that. And so you see so many startups happening in LA that maybe 10 or more years ago could only have happened in the Bay Area because they would have needed dozens or hundreds of software engineers. Um, and then the, the third thing which is benefiting the LA tech ecosystem is actually COVID um, because People are leaving San Francisco in droves. You know, the data is unequivocal. Uh, yeah. Rents are down 20% year over year in San Francisco. Home values are declining in San Francisco 10%. It's one of the only markets that's seeing rent declines and home value declines. And it's because a lot of people moved to San Francisco to work at a tech company and now they don't have to be there and they can live where they want to live. Many of them are choosing for lifestyle or weather or other reasons to live in LA. And so LA is a beneficiary of that diaspora from the Bay Area. Fascinating. So now I want to get to you, Spencer. Before we get, I know you grew up in Los Angeles. Before I get to uh, Harvard Westlake, what is your family's relationship to the Rolling Stones? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that's, sure. a, that's a bit of a curveball. No, it's um, so. But it's, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me too, and it's obviously <laughs> sentimental. So, yeah, my dad, um, who passed away a couple of years ago, was the business manager and tour producer for the Rolling Stones, for U2, for David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Paul Simon, The Police, um, wow. and many, many others. Um, you know, he had a really interesting career as an innovator in that space. And a lot of the innovations that we take for granted today in the music space, he and his team helped pioneer. So I'll just give you two mm. or three quick examples. Yeah, please. The concept of residency, which we now take for granted, right? You've got, um, I don't know, Britney Spears or the Chainsmokers or Celine Dion or whoever in Las Vegas spend, doing in Las residence. Vegas or or other yeah. places. You know, they spend you know a couple months or in some cases a couple years in the same place. That had never happened before until my dad produced and brought together Simon and Garfunkel, who hadn't really spoken to each other in I think more than a decade. And I think if I remember correctly, it was 1989 or 1990 maybe, where he brought Simon and Garfunkel together to the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden. And he put on 30 shows in a row at the Paramount of Simon and Garfunkel. People thought they were crazy. That had never been done before. Usually you'd play two, three shows in a city and then move on. But he was pretty convinced that there was a market for this. And that concept of residency was created by my dad and with Simon and Garfunkel. Um, securitizing catalogs. So uh, just this the other day, Taylor Swift's uh, catalog right. traded hands uh, right. for a couple hundred million. A couple weeks before that, Calvin Harris's catalog traded hands for 300 million. A couple weeks before that, the Chainsmokers catalog traded hands. And so the idea of kind of selling uh, these music catalogs was something that he helped pioneer through securitization with what was called the Bowie bonds. So David Bowie was the first artist in, uh, gosh, probably would have been the 80s. Um, that he and his partner securitized part of, of David Bowie's catalog and got a lump sum payment of, I think it was $75 million to David Bowie for future sale of future royalties of his catalog. So another pioneer. And then the last one that we, we've we all seen as attendees at musical concerts are these 360 tours that, again, we take for granted now. So um, what does that mean? It means that in in prior to 19... 
1990 uh, or 1989 with the, Sto- the Rolling Stones uh, Steel Wheels tour that, that he created. Um, the tour was kind of owned by the band. And the band took the risk and the band got the reward. And so these tours were smaller because the band didn't have capital. In 1989, my dad put together a group that created the Steel Wheels tour that basically bought that tour outright for a couple hundred million dollars from the Rolling Stones and took all the risk. And so they got the everything, the box office, the merchandise, the ancillary revenue from the tour, et cetera. And that's when you started seeing this explosion of big mega tours with, you know, huge fireworks and huge uh, inflatable balloons and, you know, kind of th- this era of like mega tours started happening because of these 360 tours because business people started taking risk and the talent, the artists started being essentially employees of the tour rather than the owners of their own tour. And this is the way all tours are done now, um, but he pioneered this with first the Rolling Stones and then U2. So anyway, it was... Um, Fun, very fun growing up um, and, yeah. um, and, and also learning from him as he innovated his way through the music industry. And what, I guess it begs the question, you're an innovator, you're an entrepreneur. What are the things, I'm sure there are many, but what are the, the few things you can name that you learned from him in that regard? Well, he took a lot of risk. Um, he tried to be uh, and was innovative and forward thinking. Um, he challenge the status quo. And I've tried to do that in the different industries that I've worked in. Uh, He certainly surrounded himself with extraordinary people and was a great Mm -hmm. team builder. The cool thing about a a musical tour is it's basically a startup. He would come home one day and say, you two's decided to tour. So, you know, we got to get, we got to get going. And what does that mean? It means that he'd have to hire 200 people to create a company within a couple of weeks. You need the lighting guy, you need the website guy, you need the merchandise guy or, 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 or gal, you need the, you know, the, the, you need the choreographer. You have to put the whole team together and it's a, you have to stand up a startup in a couple of weeks. That startup runs a business for two, three years. It generates a couple hundred million dollars of revenue. It has a cap table. It looks a lot like a startup and then it dissolves at the end and it goes away. And building a team around you of talented, mission-oriented people that complement each other, that's what I saw in the touring business, and that's what I've tried to do in my startup experience. All right, so now let's get to, so you, you, you go to Harvard Westlake in, I guess, the late 80s. Actually, it started as Harvard School, I should yes. mention, uh, and, then, and then became Harvard Westlake. Um, what was your experience like there? You, mess, you, you mentioned Kathy Newmeyer. What else stands out from your Harvard Westlake experience? So I, I was there from 1987 to 1993. I'm class of 93. The merger happened in 1991. Um, right. So I was there for four years as Harvard School, all boys, and then two years co-ed as Harvard Westlake School. And it was an extraordinary experience. I owe so much to Harvard Westlake, you know, that I will never be able to repay um, for all of the foundational education and friendships and memories that it provided to me. Um, specifically, Miss Newmeyer was an extraordinary teacher and inspired in me a love of journalism. And also, I learned from the Chronicle how to manage people at a very young age. And what I what what I mean by that is, journalism in high school and probably yearbook and a couple other activities are the rare activity where you're managing your peers like you would in a business setting. Sports teams, for example, don't have that. On the field, you're all peers, you're all equal. Even if somebody is the captain of the team, they don't have um, you know, managerial control over the other, other teammates. But in the newsroom at the Chronicle, you do. You're staffing reporters on articles, you're editing them, you are their manager. 
and yet you're also their peer. And I learned a lot at a very young age about management, about communicating with my employees, about servant leadership, about trying mm-hmm. to clear roadblocks for them, about trying to inspire great performance without being uh, dictatorial. I, I learned all that around management from Ms. Neumeyer and from the Chronicle. And I, those lessons are still applicable all these many years later. From Mr. Holmes and Dr. Archer and Mr. Waterhouse, these are English teachers and history teachers of mine, uh, and Ms. Flood, who was my European history teacher and was the head of the upper school at the time, I learned how to write. And being a great writer and a written communicator is perhaps the most important and yet underrated skill required for success in business and probably in life. Um, it certainly made college very easy for me. Uh, having learned how to be a good writer at Harvard Westlake was instrumental in and invaluable in helping me through college. But it, written communication is so important in business, and I absolutely learned that from Harvard Westlake. And then finally, Mr. Woods was my speech and debate coach, and uh, I participated in Oxford debate and and a variety of you know a lot of speech and debate. It was actually mandatory when I was at Harvard Westlake in I think it was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, and that was so important to learn how to be an effective communicator. Um, I always think of Mr. Woods before I do TV appearances. Even to this day, he used to say, "Pause and smile." That's what you're supposed to do before you give a speech. It relaxes you. It relaxes the crowd. It kind of disarms everybody and puts you into the right mental state. And Mr. Woods. Uh, was an extraordinary teacher, and I am very grateful to him for having helped me be a better verbal communicator. I'm curious about this uh, notion of servant leadership and what you learned from Miss Newmeyer. You've written about this actually publicly about that that experience. Can you think of an example of how that applied, say, to your leadership at Zillow or at Hotwire or 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 currently, and kind of how you use some of those lessons in working with with people in the professional world? Sure. So uh, something happened this morning in this regard. Um, you know, at Picasso, I'm co-founder mm-hmm. and chair of the board there, and so technically the CEO, my co-founder, reports to me. Technically, I'm I'm his boss. I hate using the word boss. I don't tend to use it because it, you know to boss someone around is to tell them what to do, and I don't really tell him what to do. He called me this morning. He said, "Can you join this call in 15 minutes?" Um, and I said, "You know, sure. You know, what's what's up?" He said. One of our employees is working on selling this listing, turning you know, turning a home into a Picasso, and he's getting a little bit discouraged. And I just want to encourage him that we're doing the right thing. This house is going to sell. You know, it's a great value proposition to the consumer, et cetera. And I just kind of need you there for support to help encourage him. And it's just a perfect example. It's like. I yeah. work for him, right? And and actually, he's demonstrating. The CEO is demonstrating servant leadership to his direct report as well, right? Who works for whom? Well, the salesperson reports, the CEO reports to me, but yet, yet the CEO and I were both turning the tables and we called this employee together to encourage him and to say, we're here to support you, help you be successful. What do you need? How can we help you? You know, do you want us to, um, you know, help review your sales scripts, help talk to, you know, help talk to the buyer on their own, et cetera. So it's just, it's all about inverting that pyramid and realizing that as a manager, you know, your role is to help your direct reports succeed. If they succeed, you succeed. Your role is not to tell them what to do. And um, I learned that at a very early age, again, from the newspaper and then and then on. Um, I also know that Harvard Westlake, despite all of these amazing experiences you talked about, was also a time of, of great tragedy for your family. Um, I wonder if you'd be open to talking a bit about your brother, Justin. 
Sure. So Justin was class of 91 at Harvard School, um, and he was one of the editors of the what was called the Harvard News at the time before it got renamed the Chronicle, so the newspaper. And he was a prefect and had an extraordinary, you know, loved Harvard School and had a, just a, a phenomenal time there and learned so much. And he was had been admitted to Princeton. And the week of Harvard of his graduation from Harvard School as a senior, he died in a car accident while actually taking the um, parody edition of the Harvard News, which was called Not the Harvard News, to the printer. So back then, you had to bring the physical newspaper to the printer in Glendale. And um, he and the rest of the newspaper team had pulled an all-nighter uh, to finish that parody version of the newspaper the day before graduation. And he had driven it to Glendale at 8 in the morning. And uh, after having dropped it off at the printer, uh, he was in a car accident on the freeway and died. And I was in um, 10th grade, I think. I think I just finished 10th grade at the time. And, you know, it was obviously awful for me and for my family. It was also offered awful for the Harvard Westlake community because he was yeah. a, a pillar in it. Um, you know, students and others in the community might have seen his name. Uh, next to the chapel, there's a, a plaque in his honor and there are some student and, and faculty awards in his honor that are given at graduation. Um, for me personally, um, I think it had the impact of catalyzing my involvement in the community and feeling that I should do more, be more, excel more, work harder, um, you know, just sort of um, try to accomplish whatever he would have gone on to accomplish at Princeton and what he, whatever he did accomplish at Harvard School, yeah. I ought to do at least as much to sort of make up for his absence in the world. And so I kicked it into uh, the, the next gear, I guess, um, that, that junior year. And, and I haven't really, you know, not sure I've slowed down since I'm still, yeah. I'm still out there trying to make up for whatever dent in the universe he would have provided through my actions as well. I'm curious, you had just finished your 10th grade year. Were there people either within the Harvard Westlake community or outside of it that, that reached out to you during that time or your family during that time to kind of support you through that? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, w frankly, we had a um, the memorial service for his passing was at the school. Uh, Mr. Hudnut, who was the uh, head of school at the time, presided over it. Um, so, in, in a lot of ways, it was a community, you know, community mourning altogether. And yeah. um, I am forever grateful for to Mr. Hudnut for having brought the community together in that way. Um, but the the whole community um you know his best friends were all from harvard school and you know so what's what's interesting to me is so many of these people are now involved in the community again casey fetterman as an example who was one oh, of yeah. his best friends president of the alumni association president of the alumni association and a parent uh, at harvard westlake and uh, mr commons um who back then was an english teacher and worked in the admissions office is of course now back again as as head of school and mm -hmm. um you know there are just there are many um parents People who are parents today who were friends of Justin back then and were important to my family uh, during a very difficult time. After Harvard West, like you end up going to Harvard University. What was your, and obviously you've now gone back and taught at Harvard Business School recently, more recently, but your undergraduate experience, what was that experience like? What did you study and were there people there that guided you in the direction of entrepreneurship or, or business or innovation? Not enough uh, on that last <laughs> point, okay. um, which, yeah. which I'll come okay. back to in a second. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, I went to Harvard 
college. I'm very grateful for that. Most importantly, because I met my wife there. Um, ah. And um, Nancy was actually, she, I met her before Harvard College the summer before going to Harvard College. We met for Southern Californians uh, who were going to Harvard. So we met in an LA barbecue the, the summer before starting college and we started dating as soon as we got to campus. So we've been together since we were 17. But the the Harvard College experience, frankly, was was terrific. But thanks to the incredible preparation at Harvard Westlake, it was not that challenging, for mm. which I'm grateful. <laughs> um, and again, it comes down to being well organized, being an efficient user of my time, you know, kind of time management plus writing skills, which are two of the skills that every Harvard Westlake graduate finished, you know, graduates with. Yeah, are the two things that are required to be successful in a competitive college environment and and probably in life. Um, so, in terms of the entrepreneurialism, uh, back then, this was mid '90s. I was class of '97 from college. There was very little entrepreneurialism in uh, an Ivy League school like Harvard College. In, in fact, the only people that ended up going to tech from my my era, class of '97, were the mostly. I'm generalizing, obviously, but mostly the people that couldn't or didn't get jobs on Wall Street at investment banks or at consulting firms. So the people that went to like eBay and Excite and Lycos and Yahoo, those early web 1.0 winners, um, you know, they were, some of them were trailblazers, but many of them were, you know, not, uh, not the top of the class. And of course, this has all changed 20 years later. Now yeah, the right. graduates want to go to Google and Apple and, and, and great tech companies. But back then that was not the case. And I'm, it's something that I've worked with Harvard College quite a bit on in terms of trying to get Harvard to encourage their students to be more entrepreneurial. They now have something called an iLab, which is like an incubator space. Um, they have a much more diverse curriculum. They send fewer people into finance and many more people into tech and entrepreneurship than they did back then. So Harvard College has worked hard at rectifying this. And so from there, how do you go to co-founding Hotwire just a few years later, right? After yeah. Graduating? So, so I mean, what I did in college, I, I I worked at a couple investment banks over the summer, and what people back then did if they didn't know what to do after graduating from an Ivy League school is they worked on Wall Street, <laughs> and I did that. So I went to Goldman Sachs, and I was an M and A, a mergers and acquisitions analyst at Goldman Sachs, and I did that for two years in New York, and then I moved to San Francisco to work at a private equity firm called TPG, and. While I was at TPG in 1999, we started looking at ways to take advantage of the internet, which believe it or not, yes, there was a time when the internet was was new and the internet was newish back then. That's true. And what we observed was that there were a couple early online travel sites that had found a lot of success like Priceline and Expedia, but we thought there was more opportunity there. And TPG had bought out of bankruptcy Continental Airlines, and they had bought out of bankruptcy America West Airlines, and they had a significant stake in Northwest Airlines. So three of the largest airlines were effectively controlled by this private equity firm. Hmm. And so we at TPG went to these three airlines and three others and said, let's create a consortium company that is owned by these six airlines, which will be a discount travel website, and we'll compete with Priceline. And the airlines loved the idea, TPG loved the idea. And so I left TPG to start this company that these six airlines would start and TPG invested $75 million. And I and another guy from TPG were the co-founders and I was 23. And wow. at the same time, you know, the other interesting part of the story is that these six airlines said, this is such a great idea. Let's also create a consortium company, a website 
to compete with Travelocity and Expedia in the full price space. And and we said at TPG, that's a great idea, but you know we have our hands full. We're just going to focus on this discount thing. And those six airlines went to hire Boston Consulting Group to create what they called T2, which stood for Travelocity Terminator. And T2 huh. would become Orbitz. So Orbitz ah. was created at about the same time as Hotwire. Um, Hotwire went after the discount space. Orbitz went after the full price space. And many, many years later, they both got acquired by Expedia. And so now uh, Hotwire and Orbitz are both part of the Expedia group. So that's how I ended up starting Hotwire at age 23. You know, there were ups and downs, many yep. more downs than ups. And uh, mm. But four years after founding, we ended up selling the company to Expedia. Uh, and it was an incredible learning experience for me. So then, I, I suppose a few years after that comes Zillow. And so what was the, the germ of that idea? And then how did you, you obviously didn't start as CEO, you became CEO. And what were yeah. your different roles at the company? So what happened, um, you know, I moved to Seattle to work at the new parent company of Expedia. And I, I was running the hotel business for Expedia uh, globally. And after about a year there, I was frustrated that it was a big company, it was slow moving, it wasn't innovative enough, and I wanted to be doing, uh, be a startup. And a number, a couple other Expedia execs felt the same way. And so we left together to start what would become Zillow. And the idea came from us being in a conference room in downtown Seattle on a high rise where we spent about three months brainstorming on business ideas, my co-founders and I. And we were looking out the window at a neighborhood called Queen Anne, which is a suburban neighborhood in Seattle. It's on kind of a hillside, so you can see it mm-hmm. um, from, from downtown Seattle. And Queen Anne has all these beautiful Victorian houses in it. And we had this idea of, imagine if you had sort of a God's eye view where you could have a data layer of information overlaid on top of all these houses. Wouldn't that be amazing? And you know, so there was the germ of that idea from that. And then this is a very Seattle thing, uh, this this next story I'll tell, which is from this window, we could see Puget Sound, which is the the water that uh, Seattle is is on. And in Puget Sound, a couple months a year, you see whales, believe it or not, from your office building. So today, from the Zillow office building, you can actually see whales out the window as they migrate up the coast to Alaska. And we started talking about whales <laughs> and how when whales breach, when whales come up above the water... Everybody oohs and ahs and sees them like, oh, this is so cool. Look at that whale. And then the whale goes underwater for half hour, sometimes an hour. And nobody knows what's happening at at that point, right? You're like, where'd the whale go? This is whale watching is boring. And you wait for the whale to come back up. And to us, that felt a lot like homes where when homes come on the market once every seven years on average, people at the neighborhood barbecue say, hey, did you see that guy? Our neighbor's house is on the market. There's an open house. Nosy neighbors go to the open house. People look at the photos online you know, et cetera, people right, will talk, right. but then the home sells and it goes underwater, if you will, off market. But a lot of things are happening to that home when it's off market, not the least of which is that the value of the home is changing. It's going up mm-hmm. or it's going down based on market conditions. And so we started talking about the value of homes changing even when homes are not for sale. Anyway, long story short, we, we decided that it would be incredibly interesting to figure out what every home in the country was worth and to publish that as a data layer on top of a map. And so we called um, a guy named Stan Humphreys who ran analytics. And this became the the Zestimate? Exactly. This became the Zestimate. So we called the head of analytics at Expedia and we said, you know, hey, we worked with you for for a long time at Expedia. You know, we're cooking up this new idea. We want to value every home in America. And he said, well, I don't know anything about real estate. We said, it's it's a math problem. It has nothing to do with real estate. And you're, you know, you're a math whiz. 
let's uh, let's do this together. And so he left Expedia. This is Dr. Stan Humphreys, who still to this day is at Expedia and runs analytics and is kind of the father of this estimate. And so it took about six months from that point to build the algorithms, acquire the underlying data, build the first version of the site, and launch uh, what would become Zillow. Somewhere shortly after that, we also hired another Harvard-Westlake alum, I want to point out, um, a guy named Chad Cohen, also class of 93, my classmate, uh, who would become our controller. And um, you asked what my original position was. My, my original position was, was head of marketing, was CMO uh, when we started the company. And then I became CFO as well and COO. And then when we raised the Series B, so after about two years, I became CEO. And my co-founder stepped back and became chairman for the next... 10 or so years. And then when I retired, he stepped back in to become CEO. But anyway, um, so Chad was our first controller. He became CFO. He was the CFO that took Zillow public with me and had a great career at Zillow. And then another Harvard-Westlake alum, a woman named Erin Lance, who's quite a bit younger than I. Um, she ran our mortgages business for many years um, and was another very important executive at Zillow. So running that large company, were there mentors at the company or mentors in the tech world or the entrepreneurship space that served as as mentors or as guides to you during that time as you ran that company for what about nine ten years you were CEO is that right? yeah I was I was there for about fifteen years I think I was CEO for tenish um, you know it's a, it's a great question Eli and and the interesting truth is no I haven't actually had formal mentors the way you might think of mentors kind of like yeah. somebody puts their arm around you and keeps an eye on you and helps you with your career I mean of course I've yeah. had people throughout that have been valuable advisors and, and friends and colleagues. But the advice that I would give to people in this regard is that you can hack mentorship, meaning, uh, and this is especially important for younger people, yeah. uh, like I hope that there are listeners listening to this who think of me as a mentor who I've, whom I've never met. Yeah. And those people listen to my podcast, they read what I write on Twitter, they read, you know, what I write on LinkedIn. And so for example, I'll give you two people that I think are mentors to me, but they don't think they're mentors to me. One is Jeff Weiner, uh, who was the founder and CEO for many years of LinkedIn, and one is Sachin Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. And I know these two folks. I mean, I've met with them. Actually, Sacha has been a guest on my podcast. And, you know, I trade emails every once in a while with both of them. But they're, you know, I'm not, I don't text with them. I'm not particularly close with them. And they certainly wouldn't think that they're mentors to me, but they are. Everything Sachia says publicly, I track. Everything he writes, every annual report, every shareholder letter, every tweet, every blog post, every YouTube video. You know, every time Jeff, when he was running LinkedIn, get, would give a speech or they would have an analyst day for investors, I would watch it and listen. And I, I have learned so much about management and business strategy from those two people whom I consider mentors, even though they're not. So that's what I mean by hacking mentorship. It means kind of attaching yourself to and finding a couple people that you think you can learn a lot from and um, you can you can assemble kind of a virtual team of mentors yeah which is especially important now because people don't stay at the same company you know like they used to our parents were at companies for you know 10 20 50 years our grandparents and you know that's just not the way life works anymore well I appreciate the work you you've done at Zillow uh, my wife and I we sold a condo this summer and purchased a home so we were on the Zillow app all summer, every day, multiple times a day, uh, trying to see kind of what was out there. And uh, I, I guess from a, this is a personal question, but I assume other people are are curious. What do you think about the housing market in Los Angeles right now? It seemed we had six offers on our condo. We had, there were multiple offers on the home we bought. It was very good to us. The interest rates are low, as I mentioned. Uh, what's your opinion? 
So, I mean, the housing market is is on fire right now, and yeah. it, it's it's partly because of low interest rates. It's partly because there's people are being untethered, and therefore there's just a lot of movement as a result of um, you know of this new work from home hybrid lifestyle. LA real estate continues to appreciate really rapidly, and you know part of it in LA also is it's even though it's sprawling, there 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 are some natural boundaries that between the freeways, the ocean, um, yep. the mountain ranges that um, really limit the it create these kind of limited supply in different micro areas in a way that like a Phoenix doesn't have or Dallas doesn't or Houston don't have, and so that fixes supply and and drives up prices. You know, the real thing to watch is what impact the hybrid work from home trend will have and what impact yeah. autonomous cars will have. Hmm. So, you know, imagine for a second that you live in, you know, Santa Monica and you go to your office in Century City every day. That was pre-COVID. And now in a during COVID world, you live in Santa Monica and you're not going to your office at all. And in a post-COVID world, you live in Santa Monica and you're going there maybe once a week or once every two or three right, weeks. Right. Um, and now imagine a world where five years from now or 10 years from now, you have an autonomous car that you can sleep during that commute or you can sit in the back seat or watch TV or, or work. So, so now all of a sudden, you don't have to live in Santa Monica and pay this huge premium and have a smaller house to be close to Century City. Instead, you can live in, you know, wherever, Calabasas, you can live in Santa Barbara, you can live in Ojai, you can live wherever. Uh, mm -hmm. Because Why? Because you're only going to that office in Century City once every, once in a while. And even when you are, it doesn't matter if it's an hour or an hour and a half because it's productive time. So I think you're going to see a lot more sprawl over over time. It'll take a couple of years. But, um, and then I think you'll also see a lot more of a hybrid lifestyle. And clearly that's what I'm betting on with Picasso, which yeah. is to say that people, especially without kids, might have a, a much more of a nomadic lifestyle. Maybe they have an apartment in Century City and they have a Picasso in Park City and a Picasso in Miami and they kind of bop around and they stay yeah. you know, a couple of weeks a year in New York and they, they have a much more of a digital nomad type lifestyle. So before we go, there are a few kind of standard get to know you questions as part of the supporting cast and they actually relate to Los Angeles. So we're, we're on topic. Um, LA is known for its movies, its food and its climate. So the first question I have for you before we go is what is Spencer Raskoff's favorite movie? Gladiator. Gladiator with Russell Crowe. Easy, easy. Gladiator. It's what got everything. It's got Gladiator. it's got action. It's got romance. It's got a great, you know, great soundtrack. Um, great special effects that stand up, even though it's it's a little bit of an older movie at this point. Um, great acting. You know, Gladiator's got it all. All right. What is your favorite meal? It can be at a restaurant in LA, or it can be something that you guys make at home. Uh, favorite meal, um, well, favorite restaurant is probably Din Tai Fung in LA or okay. Sugarfish, but uh, I think probably Thai goes to Din Tai Fung. Um, dim Sum overall is terrific. Uh, what is your favorite place in LA? It could be probably a part of town. It could be a... Santa Monica Beach. Uh, the boardwalk um, in Santa Monica Beach, you know, riding a bike or, or walking there, especially in the winter. I just pinch myself sometimes and feeling, I can't believe I'm so lucky that I can be in a place where it's December and it's 70 something degrees. Actually, the name of my uh, kind of holding company that makes all my angel investments and also starts these other startups, sort of my my one person startup studio is called 75 and Sunny, which is uh. 
which uh, I, I not is a nod, of course, to the weather in LA. And when I moved from Seattle after 15 years in Seattle, and I, I was lucky enough to be able to move back to LA a couple of years ago, I started the the 75 and sunny. So it's something I, I imagine that it, was one of the motivators. In addition to Harvard Westlake, I hope for your those, kids. But, the uh, two main motivators weather. for moving from Seattle um, were the lifestyle overall, weather is part of it, and Harvard Westlake, absolutely. And I'm so happy that um, my daughter is in 10th grade now and, and loves Harvard Westlake and has become every bit as a big a booster and Harvard Westlake zealot as I. Uh, last question. You have you were the parent of, of a couple of kids. You have two or three? You have three. That's right. You have a younger one, or you have one applying, I believe, and then a younger one. Um, I wasn't going to mention that because I thought that would be like bad form. But but oh, yeah, that's, that's that is true. I have a sixth grader, yes. uh, and a, and then a fourth grader also. And I have a, a two year old. Uh, my daughter just turned two. That's right. that's right. What is your best parenting advice? That's a good question. I mean, I'm I my kids probably get sick of it, but I'm just constantly teaching them. I, I I do not think that you can outsource teaching to to schools as much as I love Harvard Westlake. So um what's an example? An exa- uh, uh yesterday um at lunch, which again is such a blessing to be able to have lunch with with my three kids, my fourth grader this, I'm not sure if I should share this story publicly. It's gonna make us all sound very strange. But she said, um, you know, what do you think it would be like to be an assassin? You know, maybe maybe I should be an assassin when I grow up. That's what my fourth grader weirdly said. And so I, of course, naturally, you know, where would you go with that, right? Uh, Eli, I'll tell you where where I went with it. I was like, okay, well, let me let me actually teach you some things about being an assassin. And I I told her how in the news recently there is this question in Iran of whether two Israeli assassins killed two Al Qaeda terrorists allegedly, and Iran denies it and Israel denies it, but everyone kind of knows that these assassins killed these two Al Qaeda folks in Iran. And the fourth grader is kind of looking at me because then I, of course, I have to explain what's Al Qaeda and where's Iran and why, you know, what, what are you talking about and who, how is Israel involved? And then I described um, Munich, another great movie, and how after the 1972 Olympics, Israeli assassins went and, and killed some of the folks that were involved in the terrorist attack on Munich. And then we somehow got into after World War II and the Holocaust, how again, Israeli and also American agents assassinated a number of um, former Nazis in South America. And so we, you know, I, from that one word of assassin, I decided to, to launch a 15 minute soliloquy that went everywhere from Al Qaeda to the Holocaust to everywhere in between. And I'm not sure how much of it my three kids retained, but even if they retained a small portion, then I probably taught them something. So yeah. that's, that's so kind how of don't I be afraid, Don't be afraid of the follow-up question, <laughs> getting into the weeds or yeah. if there's an additional lesson beyond the, the one asked, don't be afraid to sort of go into it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always talked way above their head, figuring that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll grow into it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this, this conversation was, uh, was no different. Well, Spencer Raskoff, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Um, And thank you for being part of the supporting cast. Thank you. 